Here follows another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This recording was made on Thursday the 24th of November 2011. Opus, the Oxford Publishing Society, organised an event at Oxford Brookes University. The title of the event was Reaching Tablets and E-Readers, UK Channels for E-Books. This first talk is by Linda Bennett of Goldleaf. The talk is introduced by Sheila Lambie. And we're going to start with uh, Linda Bennett uh, from Goldleaf, which is a company that uh, she owns, she set up and she owns it. Um, and she has had an interesting background which prepares her really well for, for what she does uh, at Goldleaf. Uh, having started off as business development director with Waterstones, uh, a long time ago, more than a decade ago, when Waterstones really started to think seriously about e-books and e-readers. Is that right? Um, and she also has done, uh, as really a guru and an expert in this field, she's done lots of reports for uh, the Publishers Association, the Booksellers Association. She's worked for different publishers to help them find their way into e-books. Um, and she's done lots of market research for UK and I think other publishers around the world um, to help them develop their strategies and implement those strategies. So we're going to hear from Linda first. Well, first of all, um, we are talking about some very emerging markets tonight and therefore I thought it would be useful rather than me just burbling on about what I think to try and get some statistical information. Um, and I'm very grateful indeed to Nielsen Book Data and Book Marketing Limited for supplying me with some of the statistical information that they've collected. Having said that, um, a couple of words of warning. Um, one is you look, need to look at their research very carefully um, to make sure um, that you're comparing like with like. Um, and secondly, um, they've done their research in quite different ways, so some of the things, some of the slides I'm going to show you look contradictory. Uh, but having said that, as I say, I'm grateful to them and I think it's better to have this statistical information than um, for me not to have a framework to, hand, uh, to hang on what I'm going to say. The e-books have been around for a long time, actually, um, a lot longer than people realise. The first ones were produced in the 1970s. Um, but I really date the advent of the modern e-book with the advent of Net Library. Net Library was set up... Um, by a bunch of hippies, actually, in a place called Col um, Boulder in Colorado um, in the US in 1997. And that's when people really started taking an interest in e-books and thinking about how they could develop the technology. Um, and Let Library came to this country in the year 2000, which was the year, in fact, in which Waterstones, um, jointly with HarperCollins, launched the first retail um, commercially e available ebook, um, which was called The E Before Christmas, um, and I worked on that with um, um, Graham Bell from um, HarperCollins, who some of you may know, has probably spoken to some of you, I imagine, who now works for BIC. Um, and we had a hell of a job with it, I can tell you. In fact, my boss at Waterstones at the time, um, David Neal, the old MD there, said, you better change the title of that e-book um, to the year before Easter because we're not going to get that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so nothing changes. Um, but the paradigm, I mean, after that we've had 12 years or so of people saying e-books are like journals, which they're not, and they can't be sold like journals. The experiences that librarians have had with them are quite different from journals. E-books won't catch on because the, the hardware isn't right, and then 
Um, people won't buy the hardware because it's too expensive. But I would say that about last year, um, we had a real shift in the paradigm. And um, now the market is changing very rapidly because of the advent of new technologies that really do work and are getting cheaper all the time. So smartphones are redefining the mobile market and tablets are redefining the smartphone market. And in spite of that, dedicated e-readers still command a very large market share, and I'll show you some statistics in a moment. Um, and one of the things that um, the research companies like Nielsen Book Data and Book Marketing say is um, with, with mobile phones particularly, um, the combination of location, loca location pinpointability and social networking gives the customer no hiding place. Now I'm going to come back to that um, probably several times because that, as you will realise immediately, is a two-edged sword. Um, if you go chasing after customers who aren't interested in you, you're likely to get bitten. So, these are Nielsen Book Data figures. Nielsen Book Data have a research arm, and um, these figures were first um, presented at Frankfurt, um, at Tools for Change at Frankfurt this year, which I didn't attend myself, but I know that um, maybe even some of you did, actually. Um, there are now more than 5 billion mobile phones owned worldwide. Now, um, that's the first statistic I should ask you to exercise caution with <coughs> because some people have more than one. So that doesn't mean that 5 billion people have got <coughs> mobile phones. And there are 50 million to 70 million tablets owned worldwide. You see these figures are quite broad brush. I mean, give or take 20 million. <laughs> um, and there are 15 million to 20 million dedicated e-reader devices worldwide. And again, broad brush, ownership is growing at an annual rate of between 10% and 18%. I'm not a mathematician, but you can work out that's quite a variation there. These are Nielsen Book Data figures again. And um, I should add that this research arm of Nielsen Book Data is an American company. So it's not biased towards the UK. And I think that these figures are quite surprising. Um, because the UK seems to have more smartphones um, Per head, now these are per head of population, by the way, per head of population than the US does. But of course, you remember there are still five times as many people living in America, so there are actually small, more smartphones in America. Um, feature phones, by the way, I, I didn't find out from them what they meant by a feature phone, but I think they just mean an ordinary mobile phone. When they apply that. Um, so I'm not going to work through all those figures with you, but perhaps you'd like to sort of bear them in mind. Um, tablets and e-readers, um, the penetration is much less with those at the moment. Um, but again, the, U the UK is out there with the US in terms of percentage of ownership. Um, obviously, again, um, but that means there are five times fewer people owning them here. Um, I don't know why um, penetration is higher in Spain than it is in Germany, um, um, but Germany and Italy, I would say, probably represent the rest of Europe now. What they didn't have, which would have been really interesting, was some figures on Asia. So unfortunately, I couldn't find any reliable figures on Asia for you. Um, but I know that the figures on Asia, particularly for mobile phones, would have been much higher. So profile of owners, still on Nielsen book data. Um, the first thing to remember about these figures is that they aren't percentages of the whole population, they're only percentages of the people who actually own these devices, which, as we've already said, are quite low. Um, 
And personally, I didn't find these figures all that interesting because 37% of tablet owners are age 45 plus and 36% of tablet owners are aged under 34, so <laughs> they sort of run the whole spectrum of ages. But anyway, um, the next one's a bit more interesting. 51% of e-reader owners are age 45 plus, so e-readers attract older people. Um, and I think that might be quite surprising to some people, actually. And then 35% are aged under 34. Um, and 84%, according to Nielsen Book Data, are extremely satisfied with the technology they use for reading e-books. So um, if you'd run that survey even two years ago, um, people would have said, I can't stand this, I don't like the backlighting, I don't like the typeface, etc., etc." So people really are finding it a pleasurable experience to read um, on these devices now. And in fact, I walked the length of a train from Yorkshire to London um, last week and there were more people reading on devices than there were reading paper books and that's the first time t um, that's ever happened in my experience because I always look at what people are reading on trains <laughs> so, 63% of tablet owners prefer to access ebooks through apps but I would be very suspicious about this as a statistic because the trade, particularly um, trade publishers, have pushed apps. And it's a question of people just accepting what they've been given. Um, so to misquote, apps are not the only fruit. There are other ways um, of finding e-books. Um, and one of them is a direct way through to publishers' websites using QR technology. And I do um, apologise for infiltrating with the enemy here, but this is a Cambridge <laughs> University press bag with a QR, um, a QR, whatever you call it, <laughs> device on it. And, um, they've given me quite a few of these, by the way, so do help yourself at the end. <laughs> <laughs> they've also put it on their bookmarks. Um, interestingly, when they gave me these, which was exactly four weeks ago, uh, I'd hardly heard of QRs, but now I've seen them everywhere. There was some on a poster at the station this morning. I saw some in a newspaper the other day. Um, so they're catching on in, um, not just by publishers, but for all sorts of things, by insurance companies, etc. Incidentally, this one does work. I gave it to someone and said, does that work? Um, can you scan that into your mobile phone? Um, a, a technical person I've been working with in London. And I went out for a meeting and then came back again and he said, that bag does work. And I said, how did you make it work? And he said, I took a photograph of it to make it smaller and then um, I used it to um, log on from there. But I think that rather defeats the object of the exercise. Kind of one-stop thing. I mean, having said that, they're really nice bags, aren't they? 19% um, of tablet owners prefer to access through websites. As I say, though, it's a question of which people are using the apps and why. And 18% of tablet owners have no preferred access method. Now, um, Nielsen Book Data didn't ask people who use e-readers. I, um, I don't know why they missed this bit out, but they didn't ask people who use um, dedicated e-readers um, how they prefer to access, um, so I don't know. And I'm sure you're all um, familiar with the term heavy, heavy readers, which... Um, was coined, uh, well, I think actually by some research that Waterson's did with Taylor Nelson Softwares about 12 years ago. And there are definitions for what he heavy um, book reader is, and I think it's something like um, a heavy book reader 
buys 14 books a year. Well, that's what it used to be. Uh, I mean, personally, I don't think that's a heavy book reader at all. Someone's probably <laughs> bought that many by the end of January. Um, but 31% of e-reader owners read 11 to 20 books a year versus 13% of non-owners. And 26% read 21 plus books a year versus 19% of non-owners. Now, um, research never tells you the things you really want to know. What you really want to know is how many paper books those people used to read and are still reading, and whether it's a larger or smaller number um, than those figures. 36% um, of e-reader owners buy six books a year versus 16% of non-owners, and 20% buy 21 plus books a year. Now, those are the real heavy um, book buyers, of course, um, versus 11% of non-owners. Whether or not this is a question of re rejoicing, I'll come back to later, because it's a question of how much they spend on them. Um, and I think they'll find it's not nearly as much as they were spending on print books. So that's a big issue for the industry, obviously. 36% um, of e-reader owners say they read n more now than they used to read. Um, and 51% dislike direct advertising. Now that comes back to that point I made earlier. You know, you can pinpoint who the people are, particularly if they're using mobile phones, but if you piss them off by advertising to them and they don't want you to, then um, you've probably lost them as a customer forever. But there are ways of addressing that too, and I'll come back to those. Now these next slides were... Um, Um, provided by Book Marketing Limited, and I'm not going to go into them in any detail. They are also um, nine months old now, and of course the market's moving very rapidly. Um, but this, these are UK owners of devices, whole population. Um, so if you like to think about them in conjunction with those other, other figures, you'll see um, that the most likely way that people are going to access e-books is still the laptop and the desktop by far, in spite of the fact that all these other devices are wonderful things. Um, downloading by device ownership. Um, again, you're talking about tiny numbers here, um, because these are the people who own the devices rather than people who are accessing them in other ways. Um, but what's interesting is um, a huge amount of people who are still downloading free um, information um, versus the people who are prepared to pay for it. And I don't know. I don't know the kind of provenance of this. I mean, if it includes libraries, then the figures are very skewed anyway. Um, but this is a more interesting slide. Um, if the market that you're targeting, and I guess the market that most of you are targeting, is the student market. Um, then more of them have smartphones than any other kind of device, and I guess you would expect that. So, what are the issues for publishers? I've come up with an anagram, it's Paddy. Um, <laughs> not Paddy in Irishman, I think, so much as Paddy in having a Paddy or Paddy work. Um, so, I think the five things that publishers need to think about our price and business models, access, design, discoverability, and yesterday. And I'll tell you later what I mean by yesterday. So, as we've already said, the Nielsen survey was very pleased by the fact that 51% of ebook buyers 
um, think that they are priced appropriately at between $5 and $9.99. Now, if you are um, higher education publishers, I expect you to be horrified by that figure. Um, the reason they were pleased by that is because it was in the context of people buying ringtones, which, as you probably know, are called um, online trinkets or online jewellery, um, at a few cents each, and people downloading films at about $2 each. Um, but I think that suggests to you that other models have to be found um, besides straightforward um, retail sales. Um, and I better not get into trouble by telling you what kind of percentage of those figures the publishers get from some suppliers, but I can tell you it's very tiny indeed. Um, I'm the director of a very small literary publisher called Salt, um, and the amount of money that Salt makes out of Amazon on ebooks can be measured in pence. Uh, per sale, that is. So people are looking at other models, and models that weren't working a few years ago. Um, paper download is becoming much more popular, um, and so people like to look at things um, before they buy them, and some publishers have a model where um, they give back the money that they paid for um, downloading or renting um, if the person subsequently decides to buy the book. Subscriptions are a very interesting model indeed. Um, a company that's really been cutting edge with subscriptions, and they've been doing it for quite a long time now, are Mills and Boone. Um, and before you laugh about the brand, uh, they are a very slick, very smart company. Indeed, I've done some work with them. Um, they, as you probably know, they publish um, books in categories. And um, in fact, from when I was a library supplier, we used to do Mills and Boone evenings for librarians. Uh, on Valentine's Day, um, <laughs> they, have, they have moved on quite a bit. Um, I mean, there used to be this rule that you never saw behind the bedroom door, whereas they have a full range of about 12 different categories now, from the old-fashioned Dr. Nurse romances to stuff that really is virtually pornography, actually. Um, <laughs> raunchy, I think they call it. Um, there's a series called Black Lace, and apparently it's very popular with truckers. Um, anyway, what Mills of Boone have done, that's very clever indeed, is, I mean, as you know, what they publish is virtually a throwaway product. It's, it's the next step on from a magazine, um, and I can't remember how much they are, but they're 2 99 each or something, the paperbacks. And they've got a huge following worldwide. I mean, there are people in Asia who buy every single one in every ser series, and that's about 144 books a year. Um, and they get people to sign up to subscriptions for these. Um, and, I mean, that's a real win for the industry. If you can get your repeat customer to sign up for a subscription, you know, a bit like a wine club that sends you stuff every quarter, um, people don't cancel these subscriptions. Um, the inertia um, with subscriptions is huge. And it's only when people are feeling really hard up that they look at things like subscriptions to things like, um, I don't know, um, current affairs magazines or things <coughs> like geographical magazines and think, well, I, I hardly ever read those, so I'm going to cancel them. So I think subscriptions are a really interesting and exciting way forward for the industry. Uh, institutional sales, sales to libraries are changing as well. Um, Paper downloads becoming popular with libraries. Libraries wouldn't touch it in the past, but they're now using it away as a way of measuring um, what people are really going to look at. Um, I mean, usage statistics have, have been incredibly beneficial to libraries, finding out um, which stuff people read and which stuff they don't read. Um, I have to say, to the detriment of the journals industry. 
because um, libraries who had this sacred cow of spending most of their resources spent on journals for a very long time indeed, are now finding out that nobody reads some of them, even the most prestigious ones, and they're transferring their attentions to database products and, and e-books, which people are more likely to read. Um, PDA, patron-driven access, is a hot topic. Uh, I mean, again, this is a very clever way of um, selling e-books that aggregators have thought of it. Um, it means that um, the library tailors the collection, um, with, uh, tailors what it wants with the aggregator. The aggregator makes um, titles in the um, in, within the parameters that the library set available to all of the library's patrons, and then um, they set a certain amount, I mean, say they, they give them £25,000 a year, and they set amounts per month that can be spent. Um, so it might be twice as much in October and February as for the rest of the year. And then if, um, if the books are downloaded more than twice, then they're automatically purchased from this fund. Um, it's not flawless, and it's, it's caught on much more with libraries than I thought it would. Um, I mean, one of the things I said, I've probably got a criminal mind, but one of the things I said to one of these aggregators was, well, why don't you just pay a student to sit in the library and click twice on all the books until they spend <laughs> <laughs> um, But apparently they don't advertise it and that sort of thing doesn't happen, and they match the collections against what they would have bought at the end of the year, and apparently it's something like 90% accurate. Um, but there are drawbacks to it. Um, and another similar model that kind of turns that on its head, which um, I should have put on the slide and I forgot about, um, is called evidence-based purchasing. And this is something that Elsevier is doing. Um, so they make the collection available to the library for six months at, or for a period of time. And then the library purchases at an agreed price the books that are most being used during that period of time. Um, and they pay accordingly. Um, so it's like try before you buy, if you like. I mean, again, having a criminal mind, I can think of ways of getting around that as well. You know, the library going into lectures and saying, well, don't download anything for the first three months, because <laughs> it'll cost us some money, but after that, you can. <laughs> anyway, um, some libraries are considering sales to students through aggregators. So if the library already has an aggregator platform, making the books available um, to students um, through the library platform, although some libraries are dead against that, some think it's worth trying. The reasons they're dead against it are, first of all, because they're going to be charging £9,000 fees, and therefore students are saying all their resources should be free, which again, of course, has huge implications for publishers. Um, and some libraries are saying, we know that e-books aren't plain sailing, and we don't want a bunch of students asking us about e-books all the time if it goes wrong. Um, Coming back to fees and students generally, um, I asked a librarian from York University to speak at one of the seminars at the London Book Fair this year, and she said, um, we've worked out that if um, we supplied all the students with an adequate amount of e-books, um, it would cost us £1.5 million pounds a year, more than we spend on e-books at the moment, which she thought was untenable or unachievable, but actually, if you look at um, the number of students at York University multiplied by £9,000, that would only be 1% of the extra money that they're getting. So it's a question of publishers lobbying, and, and uh, the Publishers Association and other trade associations are very aware of this. It's a question of publishers lobbying vice-chancellors and the government and making sure that their point of view is heard. And as an industry, we're not very good at that. Um, 
And likewise, sales to students who are gaining in popularity. That's where students can compile their own books by taking chapters from different books, which they usually do at 2 o'clock in the morning, so everyone assumes they've got an assignment to deliver the next day. Um, another significant thing is that, um, whether it's retail or um, institutional, people are expecting much more free. I mean, I've mentioned free trials. Um, institutional customers um, like temporary access. Um, they like um, publishers and aggregators to set up user groups for them. Um, some of them like publishers to supply them with white papers and other information about the industry. Uh, retail publishers like to get chapters of the author's next book or occasionally chapters of one of their previous books. Um, or they like money off offers or they like um, multiple purchase offers and that's something else that publishers have got to think about. It is a culture of the internet that some things are free and publishers have got to take that on board. So, access. I'm sure um, Liz is going to, well, she might not disagree actually. Um, there isn't that much evidence that whole books are being read on smartphones. And I think that most of the people who look at books um, on smartphones, and I know they do look at them some of the time, but I think most of them have got other devices that they read the books on as well. Now, that actually is a big access issue uh, because it means that publishers have got to make um, e-books available on multiple devices, but they've got to try and guarantee that it's for the same user. Um, the exception, by the way, for that, what I've said about smartphones is I think that some Asian countries and Africa um, students and others will continue to access e-books on smartphones and not any other way, partly because smartphones is, are the only hardware they're likely to own and partly because of the technological infrastructure of the, com of the country. I mean, a lot of them can't get broadband, for example, whereas they can get phone signals. Um, so the issues for publishers are they have to allow multiple device access. And some multi-user models are being tried, I mean, I mean very, in a very limited way. So uh, there's a company in America called Media Vault, which is um, making e-books available, um, the same e-book available to named members of the same family, uh, on the principle that if you bought a paperback, you'd probably share it with your relatives. So, for example, you wouldn't get a mother and son in the same house buying the same book. Um, and Patients with DRM is evaporating, digital rights management, a wraparounds around books. Um, and both institutional and retail publishers are experimenting with removing it. Um, but some safeguard against piracy, of course, has to be in place, particularly in Asia. Um, in institutional um, models, multiple user models are becoming a norm. And I mean, those of you who um, have studied ebook platforms will know that the original net library model was a one book, one user model and everybody hated it. It wasn't net library's fault, by the way, it was all the publishers would let them do at the time. 24-7 access and remote access are absolutely de rigueur now, and there are lots of other things um, connected with access that publishers have to be able to supply. Um, one of the reasons institutions don't like DRM, by the way, is um, because, well, for one thing, you can't page through the book in a normal way. You have to um, keep kind of clicking through the DRM. The other thing is, um, with some models, and some are stricter than others, and uh, my library actually has got some very stringent DRM. If you page through it too fast, it looks as if you're um, doing something illegal, like doing too much copying or trying to download too much of the book. 
and then it locks the whole institution out and it has to remain locked out until my library fixes it. Um, and in fact, I was, I've been surveying some librarians about business models and one of them, so I said, what's your favourite platform? Um, and she said, I don't really have a favourite platform, it's Horses for Courses. But I was so relieved when we cancelled our My Library subscription and moved to Dawson Era because they didn't have that awful DRM thing on it. So that's worth considering, um, whether you're doing it yourself or through an aggregator. Design. Um, text needs adapting from a, for successful mobile e-reader usage. Um, at the moment, um, this includes the design of websites for discoverability, but I'll get on to that. We're in a transitional stage at the moment, um, but I do believe that we'll be moving away from the book as we know it, and that the design of the book it itself will change and become very different. Um, but I've put economics there. I mean, if the unit price of, uh, that each one can command is about $10, um, then it's a question of affording that, and it's a very expensive thing to do. Um, the Association of Learning Professional and Specialist Publishers, which I'm sure some of you were familiar, are familiar with, is thinking of commissioning a survey about the relative cost of producing books in print and producing them digital only. And I wouldn't mind betting that the digital only ones come out more expensive to produce. I know they don't have the warehouse and then the rest of the overheads, but then they do have these discoverability issues I'm going to talk about next. So, discoverability. Um, as I said, simplification of information on websites. Social networking is being used both in the institutional market and massively in the trade market now. Um, channel partnerships. Um, there are so many channels to get into that publishers really need to use channel partners, all except the very biggest ones. And these channel partners are developing new business models as well. Um, so um, there's a company called Bilberry that I've been working with that has a quite an interesting borrowing model, borrowing model as well as a sales model where every time somebody borrows a book, um, the publisher and the author gets a micropayment. And having said that, of course, you'll all be aware that Penguin has just withdrawn its e-books from the library borrowing market in the US, and that's going to have a huge knock-on effect here um, uh, for all sorts of borrowing models, and the overdrive ones in um, British public libraries and others that are um, being developed at the moment both by publishers and by librarians. Um, CoreSmart is a rental or purchase model for e-textbooks and it's about the only way that um, you can get e-textbooks at the moment but it isn't for rental by libraries. So um, e-textbooks have to be bought direct by the student having been recommended by the academic. The academic gets a free copy and is allowed to keep the free copy. Um, that's attractive to publishers for two reasons. One is that um, they pick up these lost paper te textbook sales, I mean, as you know, textbook sales are dropping like a stone. It also makes sending out sample copies to academics very much cheaper. Um, sending out paper sample copies to academics is a real headache. And um, for example, publishers in the Middle East tell me that posting um, paper sample copies to um, academics in the Middle East actually costs more than the book itself. Faber Factory um, is a soup to nuts solution for um, people, publishers who don't have the resources or don't want to develop the resources um, for their own ebook conversion and platform. Um, it's been tremendously successful. It has 77 publishers currently placing um, their ebooks on it. Um, but it's primarily retail. It's, it 
well, I think it will with Dublin Institution eventually, but it's, it's primarily for higher end, if you like, trade publishers, uh, Faber type publishers, if you like, the sort of people um, who belong to the Faber Alliance. And then there are the big companies like Ingram and, uh, who um, have both B2C and B, um, B2B models um, and a variety of them. They've got CoreSmart, which is a kind of internal um, distribution model for publishers. Uh, they've got Vital Source, which is um, a kind of CoreSmart lookalike. And um, they've got My Library, which is an aggregated model, as I've already said. So if people don't want publishers who advertise direct, client partnerships are a much better way of doing it. Um, and academics are very keen, academic libraries are very keen on working with publishers to raise mutual profile. Um, I've talked to academic librarians and user groups quite a lot recently throughout Europe. Um, they've been slow to catch on to mobile phones because originally they felt that there were there was too great a multiplicity of devices and they didn't speak to each other. Now that, that is very rapidly ceasing to become the case. Um, and if, for example, you can get a Kindle app now, which you used not to be able to do. Um, academic libraries are now putting stuff on mobile phones for students. And it's things like um, putting the library making the library catalogue more user-friendly on a mobile phone and also telling them things like where there are empty places in the library or even where their friends are sitting in the library. And publishers can lock into this kind of gentle advertising, if you like. And libraries are very happy to work with publishers on that kind of thing. It's much more effective than sending people unsolicited emails. Um, students have social networks with books. Um, and universities have official internal channels for like VLEs and, and lecturer websites as well. At the end, I've put the whole ISBN issue. I'm not going to get into this, but of course, there is a big fight going on at the moment where they're Every format of an e-book should have a separate EISBN or not. And some people do one thing, some people do the other. Fortunately, um, I think that technology is going to be a good solution to that. Because it is now possible um, via the technology at the back of a platform um, to identify which e-book the customer wants and, and send <coughs> it to them without it having necessarily having an individual ISBN. Um, I'm sure Nielsen Bookdata would be horrified to hear me say that, but there you go. <laughs> um, yesterday, right. The publisher's worst enemy in all of this is that we have the huge weight of traditional publishing behind us. Um, Cambridge University Press, um, a company that I'm extremely fond of, um, with my first client, is the world's oldest publisher. It was set up by Henry VIII, and I think Oxford University Press was also developed in the reign of Henry VIII, is that right? Um, our publishing heritage is exceedingly rich. Um, and I think for that reason, sometimes what we're doing with e-books looks like one of those pictures of an Edwardian motor car, which is really um, a horseless carriage with a motor on it. Um, it's a very clunky thing indeed, we're at, right at the beginning of the journey. Um, and, I mean, I say this as someone who came into the industry in 1978. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody who can beat me. Um, <laughs> certainly for the last half of the 20th century, um, in the big set-piece battles that we fought for books, and won, I have to say, we had this mantra that books are different. Um, I mean, it was the thing that was always presented to the government when they wanted to put VAT on books. 
It was the thing that was used to hold up the N NBA, the Network Agreement, for many years. Um, it was the thing that released freedom of speech for publishers in the very famous Lady Chatterley trial in 1952. Um, coming back to the Network Agreement, um, I was at the Scottish Library Association conference um, in 1996 when Eddie Bell, who was the chief executive of HarperCollins, got up and said to the assembled publishers and librarians there, um, the netbook agreement will go over my dead body. HarperCollins will always support the netbook agreement. Um, and it, in fact, went the next day, and he was one of the chief signatures, and I don't think that he was sitting up in his coffin when he signed the form. Um, and we all said, what a dreadful man, what a horrible man he is. I don't know if anybody ever knew him, by the way. Um, he was um, <laughs> um, He was about five feet square, wasn't he? And he made Robert Maxwell look like a beauty queen. Um, and... I mean, I was one of those people. I thought, what a dreadful thing to do. And, you know, he's ruined this conference now, and all the library suppliers of whom I was one have got to scuttle off and think what they're going to do about it now. But I now think, um, I understand where he was coming from. Um, I think he really did support the netbook agreement. But, I mean, all the other big publishers were there saying that they didn't. I think that was his last ditch of stand. Um, but he couldn't. Um, go against what the rest of the people um, in the trade industry were doing. He couldn't say HarperCollins is going to stand out and support this when other publishers were moving away from it. And that's what I would encourage you to do when people say books are different. I mean, it's, it's wired into all our DNA, I know. Even the youngest of you, I'm sure, grew up with books. You grew up to respect books. And your parents said, look after that book and... Um, you've had a wonderful time reading books, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And I'm not saying that intellectually books aren't different, because clearly they are. But when you're doing things with e-books, I would encourage you at every single stage to not think books are different, but are books different? Um, because if you don't think like that, there are some very big, powerful and new entrants to this industry. People like Google and Amazon um, and Apple and, in my view, Microsoft has yet to make some kind of return that I wouldn't mind betting. If I knew how to place a bet, I would bet that Microsoft will be back in this industry. <coughs> and it isn't just the financial clout behind them um, that's giving them the edge. It's the fact that they think differently from people who have got this huge weight of tradition behind them. So I leave you with that thought. Thank you.